buzzkill. Like, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't understand how, like, this is somehow supposed to be life-giving, but then there's just a book full of rules and commands and all that stuff. I would then, even when I first became a Christian, look at things like Psalm 119, this huge, long psalm, and it talks about these young dudes who are like, I love your precepts, and your, I meditate on your word and your statutes, and it's just like, they love God's law, and I'm just like, what? Who in the world? I mean, we've been talking for weeks now about God's law in the Old Testament. Like, who really loved that? But they loved it, and they fed on it, and it was beautiful, and I, I just, uh, I I know for me personally, it has been difficult over the years to understand this new covenant of love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, all these beautiful things, and then to justify, well, what is it like then to have commands that go along with this, knowing we're going to fail to keep those commands often? I don't know about you, but it's taken me years to be broken uh, of the idea that somehow God's commands, even in the New Testament, are not life-giving, even though Jesus himself is life-giving. We have to ask ourselves, if Jesus is life-giving, what does that do to these commands? I remember when it first started to shatter for me, I was in Hutchinson looking into Christianity, and I was right on the verge of placing my faith in Jesus. And I remember a group of guys, we, we just called it man group back then, um, but a group of guys, much like the group of young guys we have here at Crosspoint, we'd get together and we'd share life together. And I remember one of them, he told me one day, uh, he told me that they were going to go repelling off of a grain elevator down in Hutchinson off of K61. And I remember, like, it blew my mind. Because I was just like, how, how could you, as a Christian, do something kind of cool? Like, how does that even, how does that even work? And, and so he did that, and I remember that kind of rocked my world. I didn't say anything to him. But then we got together often, and, and we would play games, and we would go hiking, we'd have adventures. Like, we had a lot of fun together, and it just felt wrong and weird to have fun as a Christian. But as I shared life with these guys, and as we started to open up about our struggles and God's law and how under Christ, like, we still struggled and we had issues, I started to see Jesus' rules, commands, statutes, and precepts. I started to see them in a new light as I saw the brokenness of these men and my own brokenness. And I started to see, like, God gave us this to protect us, to bless us. And these are actually forms of grace, not just something that, oh, you became a Christian? Good. You, you raised your hand at kids' camp. Now come to the church, and you just got to follow all these rules until you die. This is kind of the, you know, th this is what we didn't want to tell you, but this is what you got to do. And I started to see how, like, man, this is life-giving, even just following his commands. And it all started to break some barriers for me. And so tonight, I hope some of those barriers for you uh, in looking at all of his commands as life-giving as the gospel itself. Because honestly, it's all the gospel. The right to follow Jesus' commands are just as good as what he did to give us that right in the beginning. So tonight, I think could be powerful for you. It's going to be good. I know God has done a work even this week in my heart as I was preparing this. So we're going to jump in to Hebrews chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, start in verse 19. We're going to cover a big chunk here at the beginning, and then we're going to walk through three commands after that. So in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, so in the New Living Translation, this is where it says life-giving, by the new and life-giving way, that he opened for us through the curtain that is through the flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. All right, first thing we see, we'll park on this. This is the gospel experience. That'll make sense here more in a second, but here's what the author's doing. He, he's, he's throwing out all kinds of words of security. He's telling us that we can have confidence. He's telling us that we ha- should have full assurance. He's saying that we should be without wavering, and he's just inviting us. He's saying, come, draw near. Let us draw near. Let us, let us, let us. And he's saying, listen, there's something for you to be experiencing here. We just got done weeks after weeks after weeks talking about these big, theological, awesome topics. It's one thing to understand them. It's a whole other thing to experience them. So the author's just coming out and saying, you can have confidence. I know you as the Hebrew people, I know you guys are struggling with this new faith. But you can have confidence. You don't have to waver. The word without wavering means to be, uh, to be steady. If you're not wavering, you're steady. You have many Christians tell you on a regular basis, like, hey, you know what? There's going to be times where you're going to doubt your faith, you're going to question your faith, and that might happen. But I'm telling you what, like the author's saying, we have the biblical right to go without wavering when it comes to what we believe in Jesus. He's saying, you got that. You got that right. So what are we confident then? Well, here, here, this is the gospel, verses 19 through 22, lots of awesome stuff, and we're not going to dive into each piece because we just did that for the last couple months. But he's saying here, here's the bottom line. You can enter into the presence of God. You can have access to God. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus giving us this new covenant, this blood of Jesus, and the curtain. Remember the Holy of Holies? Curtain torn when Jesus dies, his death in our place. We have access now through a new high priest. And that's Jesus. Not just once a year, but daily we can have access to the presence of God. And so he's saying, let us draw near and have full assurance of our faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from our evil conscience. So you're going to come without guilt, without shame. He's going to wash that away. And you are going to come in purity as well by the blood of Christ. And then in verse 23, so now this is just good gospel stuff saying you can be in the presence of God through Jesus Christ. You can be reconciled. But then 23 tells us the very first thing that we can have now uh, as a result of that. And that's going to be a profession of faith. Not just sitting in a room by yourself professing faith, although that's wonderful, but being able to share with those around you about this faith. So when you accept it, when you receive it and you start to experience it, then you can obviously tell people about it. Without wavering, you can tell people about it. So the bottom line is, these verses summed up, he's talking about the presence of God, and and in the presence of God, you're going to see the power of God here in verse 23. As you profess him, we know from all the other scriptures, Matthew 28, we're talking about making disciples, there's going to be power that comes with it. When you spend time in the presence of God, that is where life change happens. And like every day, I mean, we could talk about everything up here. We could, we, could, we could walk through this book for the rest of our lives and not get through it. But summed up, every day, Jesus gives us the right, through faith in him, to have a daily access to the presence of God. Like that's sitting on the table for every one of us. And I know you know, I know you know, I know you know that no matter what's going on, no matter what life throws at you when you take time to spend at the feet of Jesus. Things change. 
doesn't it? You're going to have power. You're going to see power when you profess this faith and this gospel. Yet you know, like me, you know that so oftentimes we just don't take advantage of this presence. It's there, and we want to do it, but then there's the Royals losing again to the Blue Jays, and so we're going to watch that for six and a half hours, however long those baseball games go on for. I could rifle off all the other things that take up our time and energy. But it's there. It's there. And so, and so to, to have the first thing happen, which is that you have to have revelation. Like my hope when we gather here for nights like this is that you have gospel revelation. That God tells you in your mind and in your heart in a way that I can't just talking to you. But like you read it and you just have revelation like this is true and this changes everything. That's, that's lighting the match. That's the light going on. But even people from a distance, if they see one little match going off for one person, they're not necessarily going to flock for it. They're not going to flock to it. But the gasoline on that match is when you start to really experience and take advantage of this, being in the presence of God and seeing things change, seeing that power. You put gas on that little flame and that's where the whole world looks and says, maybe this Christianity thing isn't just something they proclaim and half-heartedly believe, but it looks like they're experiencing a power that, like, I just want to be there. You think other nations, when God's leading Israel through the desert by fire at night, you think other nations didn't take a look at that and be like, something's going on over here. You don't have to convince us to kind of tag along and just see what's going on. Like, that's what happens when people's fire is, is fanned into flame. There's power, and people want to be a part of it. Maybe more importantly, we want to be a part of it. In general, and I'm not an expert on this, um, obviously, but in general, I think in America, as the church, I think we've done a decent job of gospel proclamation. All through the evangelist, Bill, Billy Graham era, you know, uh, like we, we've done a decent job of saying, here's the message. Here's what the gospel is. You can have access to God. Like, here it is. But I think we have sold short dramatically the gospel experience dramatically sold it short. Like if anyone ever gets bored with church, something went wrong. If any one of us at any time comes to one another and says, you know, I'm just, yeah, it just kind of is, and I just don't want, like something went wrong. I don't picture God having his word written down thinking, man, they're all, they're going to get so bored with this. It's just lame. I mean, there's a reason Jesus said you're going to see greater things than this. Something's wrong. I think we've shortchanged this experience. Somehow the highest goal has been a distant heaven that we all hope to get to, and yet we forget that the purpose of this life is to usher in the kingdom that we're going to be in eternally and, and to see it expand here on earth and to be a part of God's presence we're going to stand there eternally but to experience that now on earth is going to be powerful in an unbelieving world i almost uh, not almost i think in some ways i had an advantage not growing up in the church because even though i had some bad presuppositions as to what church people did what the bible was all about as i started to hear the gospel and i was still kind of a loner wasn't for my wife, I'd probably still be a loner. I think I kind of still am a loner. Anyway, 
when I first heard the gospel and I, I started going home and I was 20, 21 years old and I had a little house and I had a little uh, lawn care business and I was going to school and I was just doing my thing, but I was alone and, and I didn't have people telling me, well, this is what Christians do. Now, are you check your list and are you, do you have daily devotionals and, and are you going on a mission trip once in your life so you can say you did something great? Like, I, I didn't know all these little checklist things and so I just, I remember I just picked this up and I remember even like, I, I don't know why, but I vividly remember like Friday nights when I would think to myself like, oh God, everybody's out there, even though I don't even know everybody. Everyone's out there. They're, they're having fun. They're doing things that like I used to want, but I don't really want that anymore. But I still feel really lonely. And I remember one of the biggest things. I remember I started reading through Matthew. I, d I didn't know what I was doing, um, but I just started picking up the New Testament and started reading it. And I was reading these words about Jesus and what he said. And I remember just getting excited. And I remember just praying to him. I didn't know how to pray. So for the first year of my life as a believer, I just prayed out loud. Like that was my prayer, just out loud. I didn't know that people prayed silently that much. Like I was so ignorant. But I remember even on Friday nights, I remember experiencing God's presence so much that one of the first things that was taken from me when I first placed my faith in Jesus was loneliness. I didn't have many friends, didn't have a girlfriend. I remember one of the first things, loneliness, because I started to experience the presence of God. And I remember just being blown away at this. And I didn't have the limitations that our Christian culture would put on us saying, well, you're not always going to experience God. And you're going to question your faith. And, and sometimes you're going to feel wimpy. And I was like, I was just seeing it unfiltered. And it was blowing me away. It was amazing. I mean, the presence of God changes things. For some kid who didn't even know how to do this thing, it changed me. And I remember getting married to Tara, and I remember starting to, to, to see, as I got to the end of Matthew, about making disciples. And I'm thinking, gosh, that's not really me, but I, I think I could maybe do something. And, and so I remember starting to look at work and all of life as differently. Like, I've got purpose now. I've got mission. And I don't just have a lawn care business so that I get a paycheck, but like, I, I, can, I, I, can be, I can be, you know, on fire with these people, and they can ask me about this, and I can share Jesus with them. I'm, I was scared to death, but I just knew, like, it was bubbling up, and I wanted to do it. I remember coming here. When we got married, 2008, I remember coming here working at Comcare on Elm, and I was the lowest guy on the totem pole, and I was a courier, and I remember I would, I would start like 7 in the morning, I would just open the Bible before I went, and I remember I'd chew up the Word of God because I remember I wanted to share this with other people, and I needed it, and like if something was going to come out of me, something had to come in me, and I remember at, at lunchtime, I remember it didn't matter if it was freezing outside, if it was middle of summer, I would go out for my 30-minute lunch break, and I'd sit in my car, and I'd just open the Word of God, and I would just chew on it because I needed it desperately because I was, I was on mission. I didn't even know what I was doing, but I was on mission, and God was working powerfully through me. I didn't know it, but man, that was my first love. It's easy for that to fade a little bit, but it doesn't have to. Some of you know those feelings I'm talking about. You're thinking, oh, I remember that. Jesus is saying, come back to that first love, the presence and the power of God. That's what we all got into this for, wasn't it? We needed something to change. Like we, we wanted, if this God is alive and big, like we know he's got power, like we want to see, we want to be a part of this. That's never come off the table. Like that's still there. Are you experiencing the presence and power? You're not going to look at the Bible, it's a big rule book. You're going to chew up those commands because they're life-giving. It's the gospel experience. Verse 24, now here's the first command we see. And he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. All right, 
What we see here is gospel provocation. Now, what we're talking about when we say provocation is the act of provoking. Okay, the act of provoking. Now, I have to say this before we even jump in. You and I are not the Holy Spirit. Amen for that? We're not the Holy Spirit, so we can't prompt and do things that only the Holy Spirit can do. But God's Holy Spirit living in us works through us. And so sometimes I know that sounds complicated, but we're not the Holy Spirit, but he's still going to work through us. Now, what does it mean to stir each other up? I love how he says to consider it. Here's what he's not saying. So, okay, so you experience the gospel and you're blown away and you start to confess and profess your faith. And it's, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. And now he says, consider what he's not saying is, you know what, the, the staff at Crosspoint, um, they should get together on Monday mornings and they should have these leadership team meetings and they should be the only ones who get together and think, gosh, how can, like, how can the rest of the folks, how can they all just catch on fire? Like, what can we do to help them? How can we stir them up? It's saying that you and you and you and you and you and you and you, like all of you should ponder, should meditate, should consider, should, you should be scheming, you should be thinking to yourself, like how can everybody's little spark be fanned into flame have you ever loved someone that much to want their spark to be fanned into flame but to to consider it to ponder it and so you got to ask yourself what does it mean for us then to stir each other up it means to cause to motivate to provoke another word is to irritate we, we have the biblical right to be an irritation spiritually to one another. Some of you should say amen to that. That covers a lot of your sins. We have the biblical right to be an irritant to one another spiritually. It's not just a personality thing. That's a right. And, and then to love and good works. Now, when we talk about love, so, so we want to consider, we want to ponder, we want to stir up. And, and what do we want to stir one another up to? We, we want to stir them to love and good works. We're talking about that agape love, so that unconditional love for those around us. And good works, we're talking about fruit that is praiseworthy. So in other words, the Bible is saying, here's what I want you to do. You're on fire for the gospel. You're in the presence of God. You're seeing God's power. Oh, this is great. Here's what I want you to do next. Okay, I want you to get around people, and I want you to ponder and meditate and scheme and think, how can everybody else catch on fire? Knowing that only God is God, but God wants all of us to be on fire. How can we do that? And how can I stir them up? How can I poke and provoke? And how can I stir them up? Knowing they might get ticked at me. Knowing I, I, might, I might do something stupid. But how, how can we provoke a little bit? What? To love radically, daily, unconditionally each other and this world in a way that people look at and say only God can do that. In a way that the angels in heaven are, are nudging each other and Gabriel's nudging Michael and saying, that is praiseworthy. You see what's happening down there? That's what it looks like when people spend time in the presence of God and they see God's power. Like, that's what it looks like to radically, daily live in such a way that makes people say, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. I'll be honest. I've felt bad at many times as a pastor as to my personality, knowing that, like, the way I encourage, the way I challenge, it, it's very, like, my passion tends to come out very aggressive. And, and I know that. And I know some people get uncomfortable with it. And I felt bad because in the past I've wondered, like, maybe, maybe that's just not a pastor's heart. And maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe, 
you know, and I've always thought, well, I'm a challenger, but I'm not much of an encourager. We'll talk about the encourager part later. But I thought, how in the world does my personality even gel? The way I, uh, to prod the sheep a little bit, how does that even gel with the rest of the Christian faith? Just doesn't seem to. But I could tell you stories. I say this for the, the glory of God and to encourage you in your own life. I, I could tell you stories uh, of, of sitting down with people, and I've told you about this one man before, but I remember every Wednesday night for four to five hours, we would sit down and we would open the word and we walk through Romans and, and we would just, just provoke each other. And he would challenge me and I would challenge him and I would preach to him for like 40 minutes at a time. And then I'd pull back and then he would say, well, I don't understand how that works and that doesn't make sense and this doesn't. And then we would say, yeah, it does. And then we would go back and forth and we would be exhausted afterwards physically. Our wives would wonder, what are you doing over there? But we, we didn't just sit back and say, well, you know, um, okay, so it sounds like you're having some spiritual concern this week. And, and okay, so um, here's what I would like to do. I'd like to move things around in your life in such a way that maybe potentially, you know, at one point you might have to walk by faith. No, we're just like, what? You work with, with Mormons? Like, we go reach them. Do something crazy. Let's see what happens. And, oh, you don't believe this? Dig into the word of God and let him prove it to you and challenge you and walk by faith. Yeah, you're going to walk by faith. We're not going to leave here until you walk by faith. Like, we were just provoking and irritating each other in a beautifully spiritual way. I could tell you more stories like that, but I could also tell you times where I've stood up and preached the gospel and looked people in the eye and, and had them get up and walk out as I started talking about hell and judgment and the reality of an eternity without Christ. Knowing the whole time, gosh, I don't think this is me just being obnoxious. This is me just presenting the truth and just, just angry at me. I could just see it. Those are sad times. But Jesus wasn't politically correct. He didn't beat around the bush. Please understand me. I'm not telling you tonight that this irritant thing, this provoking thing, is an excuse to justify us just being obnoxious or giving into our sinful nature when we interact with people. But I am telling you that when people say, hey, what would Jesus do? You know, flipping tables and driving people out of the temple is, is, is in the realm of possibilities. And I'm telling you that when you're sitting in grow group or when your friend comes to you at work over and over and over and wants advice, they keep pouring out their drama and you're thinking to yourself, why are they pouring out all the drama? And you don't really want a bad friendship, so you, don't hold, you, you find yourself holding back and you're like, oh, I don't know if I should, but like it's obvious, this is what needs to happen. Like they need to take this step and God's telling you, but you're like, I don't want to wreck this friendship. I'm telling you, God does not want us to be lukewarm. Unleash the irritation. Provoke somebody once in a while. Obviously, be in tune with God's spirit and use discernment and wisdom as you do this. But if God's spirit, who raised him from the dead, who led his entire ministry and did all those things Jesus did, like empowered him to do such, if his spirit lives inside of us, we're probably going to be politically incorrect sometimes. We're probably going to step over our bounds and what we consider our bounds in a friendship sometimes. We're probably going to get our parents or our siblings or those we love, but are maybe far from God, we're probably going to get them ticked off once in a while. 
if you don't find yourself irritating to the point where someone gets ticked off at you for the gospel, you're holding back too much. And what I find is that those who accept the irritants in their lives because they know they don't, they, they don't care as much about their safety and comfort as they do spiritual growth in Christ and being obedient. Those who accept the irritants in our lives usually more open to giving those irritations on through to other people. But those who hold back with people are usually the same people who, when prompted to obey Christ, are the ones who kind of put it off. So you stay in Nowheresville. Can I just tell you, when we talk about the vision for cross-training, we talk about you coming here and being equipped to make disciples. Like, this is my opportunity to provoke y'all to pieces. Like, this is, this is my chance to open God's word and just preach the gospel. And our desire is for those, <laughs> I know some of you, you're thinking, eh, I didn't know this is what it was all about. My desire is for you guys to catch on fire and to go back into the church and to go into the city and let that fan others into flame. Like I want people, I want missionaries to be equipped tonight that that don't just sit there and absorb it, but sit there and absorb what they're going to pour out tonight and tomorrow morning. That's what this is about. been said that Jesus comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Are you afflicted once in a while? Verse 25, the first half of it. The author says, now here the second command, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Third thing we see is gospel community. Gospel community. So some of these Hebrews had become so discouraged that they just stopped meeting together. Now, I probably don't need to inform you, but you know things are radically changing in the church in 2015. Conservative statistics would say those who were considered regular attenders who would come every week or two to some sort of church gathering or worship service now come once or twice a month. Even a few years ago, a few years ago, if I didn't see someone in a worship service for, say, two or three weeks, three weeks, and I gave them a call, I kind of knew in my gut something happened. I ticked them off or, or, or they're struggling in some way. Something happened, so I kind of prepare for it. Now, I see people at Crosspoint that I haven't seen in like four weeks in a worship service. I'll see them in Walmart, and they're more on fire for the church than half of the people who are there each week. And I'm just like, and I see that over and over and over. I'm just thinking, how in the world, like, things have changed. People don't get together for faith-based stuff as, in the same way they, they used to. And I think, I think part of the deal is that um, there's obviously... 
lots of things that would stop us from getting together. I mean, there's, there's deception. Some of us, we just get, we, we just get deceived by the things of this world, and, and so we, we remove ourselves from believers. Uh, some of it's just hate. Like, we come and we hear, and we, we just, I don't want this. I don't care about it. I don't want any of it. And then some of it is a lack of power, and that's the saddest to me. Because I know there's a group of people all around this city and all around this world that they, they're seeking God, they're seeking something bigger, but they see the church and they're thinking, eh, I don't really want what you have. It doesn't seem that great. And I think, I think the church has, when we talk about what is a meeting together as believers, like what is he talking about? I think we've, We've messed that up a little bit. We viewed it improperly. Leaders, we haven't known what to do over the years, so we think, gosh, what do we do? We're separate from the world. Okay, um, let's, uh, let's have this class and let's have this program, and we've programmed our people to death to where we want them in these four walls every night of the week to where they can't even minister or have a life outside of here because they're just here. So we think, well, hey, just we'll have more stuff for you to do. Tells us, remember Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake meeting together. Come to the six million events we have for you. And then the church, on the other hand, has started to view this as just not that important. Not everybody, certainly, but many. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, what are we inviting people into? Like, is it even worth it for people to come? When we talk about the church getting together, what are we inviting them into? Is it a social club? I've heard people even at Crosspoint, I heard a young man the other day say that he is coming here because the people are friendly. And it's like a social club. Those words coming from his wife. I thought things were pretty good myself. Or are we inviting them into something that, that there's a group of people who are in the presence of God, who the power of God is shown, and like it's something that people are just, you don't have to convince them to be a part of. They just want to be a part of it. And there's a whole bunch of those folks that are coming into Crosspoint as well. But I'm not just talking about Crosspoint. I'm talking about the church, the whole church. And the context of this is not just wimpy church gatherings or just meetings to get together and just sing a couple songs and, and talk about what our thoughts are about the Bible. No, like the context of this, as we just covered, is, hey, when you're in the presence of God and you experience this power and it's amazing and awesome, like, you should get together. <laughs> you should get together more. Encourage each other. Stir each other up. So like the context of this passage is not just a ho-hum church meeting. It's a group of people surrounded in the presence of God and viewing the power of God. Let me, let me ask you something. Many of you are in a grow group. We hope all of you are or will soon be in a grow group. Because that's going to be one of your primary ways to disciple other people. Deep down in your soul, do you really want to invite anybody to your grow group? Like, um, let's talk about the ones you love the most, your family, your friends, whether they're believers or non-believers. Do you, when you think about, well, what would it be like for them to actually come to this group of people that I'm with? Like, do you really want them to be a part of that? Or are you kind of embarrassed? You're kind of like, yeah, you know, I don't get much out of it. I still kind of go, 
but I, I wouldn't really necessarily want anyone else to be part of it. I'm just trying to be loyal. Do you, do you want people to experience the power that happens on a Sunday morning here? And this isn't a heart check for you, whether you're inviting people. This is a heart check to what do we actually have going on? Is it worth anyone coming to? Anyone being a part of? Let me ask you this. Does anybody really want to hang out with you? Like if they hung out with you for a couple hours, would it be average and ordinary like anyone else in this world? Or would they start to see passion bubbling up? Like, like they would start to see a faith that just can't be contained. And I'm not talking pushy. I'm, I'm talking like when they're around you, they can sense something is different. Could they go hours without sensing something's different? If you got the Holy Spirit in you, people should be attracted to something far greater than your personality or your looks. Do people actually want to be around us? It's not meant to make you insecure. Are we seeing power? Now, some of you are arguing with me in your hearts because you're thinking to yourself, you can't really expect some big showing of power every time Christians get together, right? I mean, sometimes it's just going to be, yeah, we're going to watch the royals. It's going to be fun. We're going to get to hang out a little bit. We're not going to see a bunch of people get saved or healed or whatever. We've come to terms with that mentality. I would wash my hands of that. If that's what you believe, fine, but I'm, I'm not going to believe that the living God doesn't want to show himself in power when believers get together. Does that mean that we're not going to get together and just hang out and build credibility in each other's lives? Of course that's going to happen. But is there intentionality in your mind that like we're, we're doing this so that we, as we walk in Christ and we go deeper in Christ, like there's purpose to this. There's a big difference between getting together and watching a ball game knowing we're moving in the same direction together than there is just getting together and watching a ball game. When we, when we send you out back into your grow groups, back into this world, like, and you've heard it long before I'm about to say it, but there, there's the old saying of you can be a thermostat or you can be a thermometer. And I know like, I know certain people, when they come and they, 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 they say, I want to be part of a grow group. I take those thermostats and I strategically place them in specific groups where there's a bunch of thermometers. Thermometers being that if you go somewhere, like you, the spiritual temperature of that room, like you're going to rise and fall with whatever it is. Thermostat being like you are on fire for Jesus, and if you go to a group of people, they're going to be on fire eventually. If they hang out with you, they're going to be on fire, or they're just going to hate your guts and leave. But at least something happened. At least lines were drawn. We we need to be a bunch of thermostats sent back out into not only this congregation, but this world saying, here is the spiritual temperature. It's going to be up here, and 
come. And catch on fire. Are you a thermostat or a thermometer? Last but not least. Verse 25, the second part of it. Again, if you guys ever see uh, an A or a B by a verse, it's talking about the first half and the second half of the verse. Second half of the verse 25 says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So when we talk about the day, we're talking about the day of judgment. We're talking about Jesus coming back. Whether We're talking about that day. Whatever happens first. But encouraging one another. So here's the third command to encourage one another. So we see gospel encouragement. The Hebrew people, 1,500 years, all their ancestors, sacrificial system. Now all of a sudden, it's done. We've got a new one. We're going to start over with a new covenant. Sounds great to us. We're all a bunch of Gentiles. To them, they're a little bit weary knowing that a whole bunch of their buddies are still following this old sacrificial system. The assumption when we're commanded in Scripture to encourage is that we're going to get discouraged sometimes. And the author knows they're wary. I don't know what you view your role in the church as, but so often our sin nature dictates that for us. If you come into a group of believers, automatically, like if you, if you asked your own heart, it's your first time in a worship service, you get together for something like this, you ask your own heart, am I going to be more inclined to nitpick and be critical and tear apart whatever's happening? Or am I there to encourage those people, whether I see them once or every day for the rest of my life? Let's be honest, most of us are thinking, I could pick this apart in a heartbeat. I'm a professional church critic. Guess what? Those don't exist. They don't exist in the sense that they shouldn't exist. But he says we get together to encourage one another. Now, encouragement takes a whole bunch of different forms. And like I said earlier, I used to feel bad about my personality because it's like, I'm just not much of an encourager. Encouragement is people who are discouraged And they need courage and confidence in Christ. They need joy in Christ. It's whatever means gets us from here to here. So Jesus, with a little boy on his lap, saying your kind of faith is the kind of faith they all need to enter the kingdom. is as much encouragement as, hey, y'all, you weren't supposed to trash the temple. I'm flipping tables. Get out of here. It's moving in the direction from lack of courage to courage in Christ. And not only that, the Greek word, if you follow the etymology all the way back, the Greek word actually, uh, the, the original meaning for encouragement is to call someone to one's self. In other words, to call someone to oneself is saying, hey, as a believer, I see you're struggling and, and I'm on fire. And to, and to encourage you, like I'm calling you to come hang out with me. And what I got, I want, I want it to rub off on you. Like I want you to hear my passion. I want you to see it. I want you to be on fire when you hang out with me. Like that's encouragement. That's why it's hard to encourage people when you're discouraged. Because you can't give what you don't have.
But he's saying we got to encourage each other because what we're doing is valuable. What we're doing when making disciples and experiencing the gospel, it's powerful. And, and one day it will come to an end. And it could happen like this. Things change in a hurry. And our hope will be realized when we see Jesus face to face. Some of you right now, you need to hear that because you're, you're, you're trying to make some disciples at home, at work, wherever, and you're just discouraged because it's hard. And you're not seeing fruit. And you're wondering, God, you, you tell us about, well, either, you know, this fruit and that fruit and bad fruit. He didn't promise that we ourselves are going to see the fruit. There's a million stories about a bunch of missionaries out there who have gone to foreign lands and poured and poured and poured and poured into people and never saw one soul saved. And years later, hundreds or thousands of them are saved because of the seed sown by someone who didn't get to realize it. You look at the Bible, the Bible's full of people from Abraham on down who sowed seeds into something that they never saw the promise in their lifetime fulfilled. But you need to know encouragement is coming and it might be in a way that you didn't realize. But it's always going to be God using his people to do it to one another. I could tell you when we were in Utah, I've never been more discouraged about anything in my life. Going out there with Tara and I and starting a church not knowing exactly what we're doing. Forget the education I had. I was inexperienced and I felt insecure. And it was awesome at times because we saw people uh, get saved. We saw baptisms. We saw a church of two go to a church of 60 or 70 or 80. But it was really just Tara and I and a bunch of new believers. And, and there's just drama. There's just drama. It was just discouraging. And in this little city of, of almost 10,000 in the middle of the desert in Utah, not only do you have 90% of the people following a different religion, but in this little, in this little city, it's just oppression like crazy. For a county of 20,000, there was on average, our first year there, there was on average a, a murder, a suicide, or a drug overdose every 8 to 10 days. And if you're in a city of 10,000 people, a lot of people know each other. So there's always somebody in our church heartbroken because someone they know died. First week we're out there, pastor's kid drinks a bottle of antifreeze. Last week we're out there, pastor's kid, his wife, drank a bottle of antifreeze. And I could tell you murders and suicides and drug overdoses all through the way. I could tell you people we ministered to this day and found out next week they went home and killed themselves. It was discouraging. And I remember we were the first church plant in a dozen plus years. And there was one other guy in town I was connecting with. And I remember one day he came to me and he said, we're going to start a church. I remember thinking, this wasn't, our church, it was, although there was awesome things happening, like I was, I was struggling because it wasn't going exactly like we thought. We thought we'd have more leaders, we had resources, we had lots of people, we had new believers, um, we had a building, but we, we didn't have leaders that we needed. We had lots of new believers, but not leaders. And then he's over here saying, I want to start a church, and my heart was happy for the kingdom and sad for me, <laughs> because I was thinking, why don't you just join what we have going but they said, no, we're, we're going to do this. And they had a group of 20 f fairly solid believers, which in Utah, you don't come across. So that's like gold. If you get someone who's walked with Jesus a little bit further than, hey, I'm going to raise my hand. 
And I remember for the first six months, Tara and I were just discouraged because we're like, what? They, they got everything that like, we would be encouraged by and vice versa. And so we let them meet in our building. So every Friday or every Sunday afternoon, they would have worship services there. And they'd have a whole new crowd than we would have. And we would have worship services in the morning. And I remember they would reach out to us and they would say, what can we do? How can we help you? They knew we didn't have family there. And they would encourage us. But I, I felt I had a lot of pride. And it was hard for me to accept that encouragement because to me it just was like, you know, pretty soon y'all are just going to take all the people we have and we're going to go home and this is going to be lame. I was just tons of pride, tons of insecurities. But God broke me over and over and over and over. I'm talking going up into the mountains and it's snowing and I'm just reading Psalms because I just got to get somebody who can relate to me. And so I'm reading some of David's junk and like, that's my junk. And it's like, no, it's my junk. And I'm like, no, it's kind of my junk too. And I'm just... I'm just struggling, and I remember God broke me over and over and over, and before you know it, we got together and we said, let's join this together, and we did, and everyone from the outside would have looked and said, two churches joining together, that's, that's failure in the evangelical's eyes, but for us, it was exactly what we needed. We were asking for laborers for the harvest. We were asking for encouragement in a million different ways, but God did what God does, and that's, hey, believer, go encourage the other believer, and hey, believer who's got pride and doesn't want the other believers to encourage them, lose your pride. Fall on your face and accept the way I encourage you. And that's believers encouraging one another. And it was beautifully awesome. And they're still trucking. Some of you need to be encouraged tonight. Because the road you're on seems wobbly, but you know in your heart, like, I'm following Jesus and I'm taking steps, but it seems unsure and unsteady and I feel like wavering. And I'm telling you, take a deep breath. Rest. And what happened on a cross 2,000 years ago, breathe in this new life, this grace, this resurrection, and keep walking. Keep walking. Some of you, you know there are people in your life that need encouragement. And you see them daily and you're just kind of holding back because you don't want to mess up the friendship or you're unsure. If I say this at work, I could get in trouble. Again, use discernment and be led by the Spirit. But some of you know there's a phone call that needs to be made. There's a hug that needs to be given. There's encouragement that's sitting in a spirit that's sitting in you. And it's God's will for us to give that out. We experience the gospel. We profess the gospel. We provoke each other. We get together and we encourage each other. These are commands, but these are life-giving commands. We're going to do something just.